The following program is brought to you by Osiris Media. This is your host, Neil the Night Holler. And direct from New Orleans, it's time for Trick Bag, your ultimate destination for the heppest tracks ever waxed. From Blue Monday to Saturday Night Fish Fry, from early in the morning till the midnight hour. For rhythm and blues and rock and roll, this is the place to feed your soul. So let's get ready for some sweet musical treats as we open up the Trick Bag. I've got something really special to bring you in this edition of Trick Bag. Back in August of 2014, I recorded an interview with Mr. Harold Winley, the bass singer and last surviving original member of the Clovers vocal group. Harold joined the group in 1948 and sang on all of their recordings, starting with their debut in 1950, all the way through to the early 60s when the group started to drift apart. Harold's bass vocals can be heard on Clover's classics like Don't You Know I Love You, One Mint Julep, Your Cash Ain't Nothing But Trash, Ting-A-Ling, Blue Velvet, Devil or Angel, Love Potion Number 9, and dozens of others. So let's get right into it. Here's the story of the Clovers as told by their bass man, Harold Winley. I got six extra children from a getting frisky. Oh, a man in julep, a man julep. So you're still active in the music industry? You're still out there performing and touring? Oh, yeah, I'm still out there through the grace of God. And, uh, of course, all of the original members have passed on. And uh, I do have a... I have a group that uh, I've been working with for the last, maybe, uh, at least the last five years. And we've been, uh, we don't do, well, we don't do a lot of touring, but we're doing mostly right now uh, uh, revival shows, as some people call them, or doo-wop shows, you know? Not from that era, but from that genre, what they call doo-wop. See, they, that, uh, those people put every group, everybody in doo-wop. You know, they call the Ravens a doo-wop group. But get out of here. <laughs> yeah. But that's why they're laying tags on stuff. But that's neither here nor there now. So anyhow, uh, the gentleman that does those shows, Rob Albanese, he's been taking groups in there for quite a few years now. Normally, his shows uh, might have maybe uh, at least 10 or 12 acts on it. Uh, different groups, you know, the drifters, the coasters, uh, you know, the teenagers, and uh, and then have a lot of the girls groups on there, the toys, you know. Uh, this show that we're doing in Connecticut at this casino it has only maybe five or six acts, and it's the Clovers, the Flamingos, and they're using the term the original Chantels. Now, that uh, gets to be confusing to me. Because I worked with Arlene uh, on another show, but she carries, she just carries the name Chantel. So uh, that could be something like a thing I went through about a year ago with the name bit, you know. Yeah, I know there's a lot of confusion with uh, some of those groups, so many out there performing using the same name. Well, uh, mine, I, I, number one, legally I can't discuss it, but uh, we, we got it uh, we got it straightened out because I know the guys. We all know each other and everything. It was just a matter of uh, they did have a uh, had a manager, so-called manager, that uh, got a bit overzealous, and uh, you know, and what he was doing, it wasn't the desire of the other men. You know, but anyhow, we got it all straightened out. We went to court last last year, last last August, in fact, and got it straightened out. So I guess maybe we should go back to the beginning and uh, talk about some of your early influences and how you first got started in your music career. Well, my musical career goes back uh, to my eighth year. You know, when I was eight, I started singing. I knew I was singing, you know. And believe it or not, the first song, first time I had a thing to do, I always called it, I blew my first gig. I was in the third grade, and we had assembly. And this is a very small school. In fact, it's a senior citizen's home now. But the classes, you know, the second floor, and you have two sets of steps. And then, then the floor, where the principal's office was for a second and third grade, I think, was down there. And then we had a piano. The girl used to play the piano. But nevertheless, our class was to be on the steps. And then coming down one set of steps, 
me along with another guy. We, you know, we just tugging. You know how guys do, you know, pull on your shirt or do something like that. And uh, making noises, which was a no-no. So Mrs. Smith told me, says, Harold, wouldn't they, you will not sing today. <laughs> it was, wow, blew my first gig. <laughs> yeah, I'd never forget that. But that was, a, that was an influence. And then uh, a new girl moved into our neighborhood from South Carolina. And uh, she was a very nice-looking young lady, you know. And uh, all the guys were looking at her, you know. And her mother uh, gave a party to uh, invited the kids from the neighborhood so she could get to meet them. And they'd get, like the people did each other at that time, you know, I want to know who your people are and what's so-and-so-and-so, you know what I mean? And uh, I sang an Inkspot song called We Three. So my buddy was supposed to be doing the bass part. You know, I don't, I, you're familiar with the Inkspot's routine, I imagine. Uh -huh. The lead singer, Bill Kenny, sang the lead, and then Hoppy Jones would come in with the spoken word. So Leonard Morgan did not come in. He froze up on me. But I didn't stop. I kept going. I stopped talking and then went back to singing. <laughs> you know? <Yeah. laughs> So now I'm around uh, maybe nine or ten years old at that time. But in the, in the meantime, uh, I lost both my parents and I had to go to North Carolina. Went to North Carolina. Uh, Washington, D.C. would be the home. I went to North Carolina to my mother's brother's house. Uh, there were five small kids. So her, her, her brothers and sisters took us. So I go to North Carolina. This is uh, in 1945. And uh, everything that went on in that little school that was down there, I got involved in it, me or my brother Paul, to the point that the principal announced we, we used to have to raise money for different things, you know, for that school. And so he said, we're going to have amateur hour, we're going to do this and do that, we're going to sell peanuts and so on, so on, so on, we're going to do this and that. And don't let the winners be the first ones to sign up. <laughs> you know, I'd be right there, man. What is it? Do what? Do what? So I got a lot of experience there. Around 1947, I was listening to the music that was on this radio station out of Washington, North Carolina. Uh, there was a hair grease that came out called Royal Crown Hair Pomade. Now, I don't know if you remember this thing. Most of the artists, I know a lot of black artists and white, during that period, used to do 15-minute radio shows. That was a fact show, man. You know, the Gospels and everything else, people had, had 15-minute radio shows. The Ink Spots had one, the Mills Brothers had one. And this, this station, man, uh, everybody in our little town, Plymouth, North Carolina, used to, uh, you could hear the radios. Everybody be getting, trying to get home when this guy come on for these 15 minutes. And that's when I first heard Nellie Lutcher's fine brown thing. And uh, also the first time I heard the Ravens. And I said, wow. I'd already heard the Delta Rhythm Boys with Lee, uh, Lee Gaines as the bass singer lead. But then I heard the Ravens sing Old Man River, man, and wipe me out. I mean, I mean, I was really taken, man. I was taken. So I carried that. This 1945, I went down there. In 1948, uh, four months, three, four months in front of my 15th birthday, I left home. I'd done everything down there. I, I was in the Boy Scouts. I wasn't playing taps. I was playing the blues on the bugle. <laughs> you know, and, uh, uh, any amateur show to come up, I used to sneak out to go up to go to the club and uh, and play my bugle. But my uncle knew about it at that time, though, but he nobody never said anything to me about it. But uh, um, anyhow, 1948, I left and went back to Washington. And I got a job at a, at a store, grocery store, with a family that my whole family knew. And uh, went and got a room for $4 a week at a place where my older brother used to live. He was there away in the Army, but the man gave me a room. And I just, I mean, I just come in town, man. I didn't know nothing from nothing. But everything was settled. And within months, there was an amateur show called uh, Morton's Amateur Hour. Morton's would be a, a department store, medium-range department store, maybe like a J.C. Penney today. And uh, Sunday morning, man, you know, that's when the show would come on. And I turned the radio on, and I heard this group, man, Got, now we got the four clovers. 
and they broke into what became our very first record. I was wiped out more by that than I was with Jimmy Ricks and the Ravens. And to this day, it's still, you know, at the top of my list. And that was yesterday, my baby. I heard that, and I said, I got to go down there. So I sent in my little request to go in, and my baby accepted me, and I ran and got some music for Lucky Old Son by Frankie Lane. That was a very big record at the time. Frankie Lane was new and very big. So I went down there, and uh, the, the, the Clovers won the week that they were on, so that means they would come back the following week. And then at the end of 13 weeks, they'd get all these artists together, or amateurs together, and then they'd have a sing-off or whatever you did, play, you know, uh, instruments or whatever. So I went down the next week and I met them. And uh, as, soon as, they, as soon as the show was over, I said, man, let's go to the bathroom. I'm going to talk to you guys. And I said, y'all know old man River? I said, you know, like the Ravens. They said, yeah, you know. So they, they had a very good bass singer named Tommy Woods. But I said, Tommy, do you know it? He said, no, not like them, you know. So I, so they knew what to do. And I sang it, man. And I said, when do you guys rehearse? And they said, well, you know, so I no, no definite thing like that. And he told me the area that they would be in. And that's right. You know, I was right at home up by Griffith Stadium, what they call Leedroyd Park, Howard University area. So I went up there, man. And uh, the next night, and it was raining like mad, Neil. So Harold Lucas came in, he said, man, what are you doing up here? I said, I thought you guys was going to be rehearsing it. And he almost fell out. He said, no, man, not at all this. But I kept going. I kept showing up. And eventually, uh, Thomas, uh, Tommy Woods, uh, he faded away. And then the other gentleman in that group's name was Billy Shelton. He sang, uh, sang the second, uh, sang baritone, sang second tenor, rather. And uh, Matthew McQuaid showed up. Matthew actually was at Howard University, man, and uh, but he was in the neighborhood, and then it was a family thing, and they knew, ran into each other, knew each other. And he would walk by every now and then and sing a song with the group. So here he is, and me, and we became closer. I had a job when I met him, but soon, soon afterwards, I was just like them. I didn't have no job either. <laughs> you know, we got singing all night, man, and... That being late for work, you know, the guy just let me go. Didn't burn no bridges, but it, 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 it was nice. But uh, that's, that's basically the way I started out with the Clovers, man. I just stayed. I just kept showing up. In 1950, we were recording. Yes, sir, that's my baby. No, man, I don't mean maybe. Yes, sir. Yes, sir, that's my 
session was with Eddie Heller, right? With Rainbow Records? Yeah, yes, yeah, so that's my favorite, Rainbow Records. But Eddie couldn't uh, couldn't do anything with that, you know. Uh, and I, I, I could see him grabbing his back. Now, I think that man had more problem with his back than uh, a whole lot of people I've seen on these commercials. <laughs> you know, he had a very bad back. And uh, he, we sang this song down. There was no, it, everything was done at once. We didn't have a band. We had one amplified guitar and a PM. That's all you hear on that. Yes, so that's my baby when you come back to me. I'll sleep at night again when you come back to me. How lonesome I This is Neil the Night Howler, and you're listening to Trick Bag, direct from New Orleans. On this edition, we're hearing an interview I did by phone in 2014 with Harold Winley, the last surviving member of the Clovers vocal group. Harold became the group's bass singer in 1948 and was with them for the next decade and a half, singing on all of their classic recordings. Let's go back now to that interview. And how did you originally hook up with Ahmed Erdogan and Atlantic Records? There was this club in Washington, the Old Rose, that drawed all of the entertainers. That's where I met Louis Armstrong. Louis Armstrong came in there one night. I was helping the girl to set up because we took over. We became janitors and everything else in that, in that place. And uh, I was helping the girl to set up. He said, I just wanted to see if the place was still here. You know, he came in, he had a, had a soda, he and his wife had a soft drink. You know, he stayed maybe 15, 20 minutes. I got to talk to him about the group. I said, yeah, have a group. Now, any other time, everybody would be there. I said, yeah, we have a little group, and we sing in here, you know, blah, blah, blah. He said, oh, good luck, you know, you know, and he went on. That was one of the greatest minutes in my life, man, believe me. <laughs> Anyhow, uh, right downstairs in this club that I'm talking about is a big record store, and we met... Uh, there was a gentleman named Earl Thomas, brother, that uh, knew this record distributor. There's a bunch of guys that used to play gin in the back of the uh, record store. 
and uh, also would go over to play uh, shoot pool in this pool room with Jeevan Jackson, the disc jockey that did that uh, amateur show. Uh, and Lou Kravitz was in that group. So Earl, Earl was on the corner. He, 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 was, a, he was a hustler. He was a gambler. And uh, he was what we call a hustler man, or, or the, as, the, as the courts decided, they called themselves trying to get him to pay tax, a uh, sportsman. <laughs> yeah, you know. So uh, he introduced us to Lou. He said, I want y'all to meet this man. And uh, he really liked the group. And the song that he liked, but hear us sing more than anything else, was Peg of My Heart, you know? <laughs> yeah, so he had us to rehearsing and carrying on, and then uh, he got us a job in Baltimore at a, at a club around the corner from where he worked. It was a musical bar. And uh, Lou also was a record salesman. In fact, he sold, he was selling X-Times label MGM, and most notably uh, national records, which was the Ravens label. So he knew the people in the industry. And he uh, he called, uh, he got got to Ahmed. Ahmed had been in Washington, you know, because Ahmed was around Washington. In fact, he grew up in Washington because his father was the ambassador to the United States from Turkey. So he knew that, and he, and he knew that music, man. He knew them blues, man. I'm telling you. Because he was singing some stuff. I said, man, I ain't never heard no stuff like it because I wasn't, I wasn't listening to that stuff. Uh, Howlin' Wolf and guys like that. There's another uh, Tampa Red and these people. We didn't, we weren't listening to that music. Because, uh, uh, number one, you get in trouble in the house, you listen to that. We didn't listen to that music. And uh, so that was, that was another set of people that listened to that kind of music. Okay? But Ahmed didn't miss anything, man. So I just got to come up with these songs. I know Ahmed was really in tune to the blues scene back in those days. And in fact, he wrote several tunes for the Clovers, right? Including your first hit for Atlantic? Yeah, that's Don't You Know I Love You. You see, the thing with that unique thing about Don't You Know I Love You, that was the first time that a saxophone had been used in that type of, in that setting. You know, there's a group singing. You know, it never happened to Raven, the Mills Brothers, nobody else. It didn't, bam, they, you know, you sing a, a what's name, and then lead into a saxophone solo. That's what sold the record. That top that that kicked that record off, man. Frank, uh, the guy's name was Frank Floor Show Cully, and that was our very first hit with Atlantic Records. Baby, can't you see what you're doing to me? Don't you know I love you, love you so Don't you know I love you so Don't you know I love you so And I'll never, never let you go Don't you know I love you, love you so Well, someday 
first heard Don't You Know I Love, we told, uh, told the man to take it back to that ain't us. <laughs> oh, yeah? This sounds horrible. Yes, are you crazy? This thing is climbing up the charts. We were at the Royal Theater in Baltimore. i never forget it. And Lou came over there and took us over to the record shop and played that thing for us, man. Oh, my God. I listen to it now and listen to uh, my youth singing through my nose. <laughs> well, apparently a lot of people liked it because it ended up number one on the R&B chart. But, uh, but actually, in those early days, the Clovers didn't really consider themselves an R&B group, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, when we met Ahmet and Herb at this big record store called Waxy Maxies, we weren't singing anything like the stuff that we recorded. We were singing standards. We were singing, uh, uh, if you have some of that uh, United Artists stuff, that's exactly what we were singing before we started recording. Those standards, Old Black Magic, uh, what else is it? My Mother's Eyes, Penance from Heaven. That's the kind of material we were doing. But uh, uh, you can see in the interview right now, I have it in fact, where he, Herb Abramson, Jerry Wexler, uh, I said, well, we forced them to sing. They didn't want to sing this stuff, but we made them sing it. Uh, I guess they did that to spice up the uh, the interview or whatever he was doing. It was never a fact that they made us do anything, you know. It wasn't necessarily what we wanted to do because we were looking at the Ravens, man. This is what I'm influenced by, the Ravens, the Delta Rhythm Boys. But we didn't know we didn't know where the money was. <laughs> the money is not over there. <laughs> We're listening to a 2014 interview with Harold Winley, bass man for the Clovers, and you're hearing it right here on Trick Bag with your host Neil the Night Holler. Could you talk a little bit about uh, recording for Atlantic in those early days and where those early sessions were done? The studio was pretty simple back then, right? It was in the office. Just like, just like uh, Jerry told me, Jerry wasn't there, but he, he, he wasn't even there, but he tells, you know, he gives you a description. It wasn't quite right. But anyhow, Herb, you take one desk, you got two desks in the office. The office is maybe, say, 30 feet, say 30 feet long, maybe uh, 15, 20 feet wide. And I know it wasn't that big. But they had two desks there. And outside of that room, there was a desk that was Miriam Abramson's desk. And in the back, this is all in one one floor, not a whole lot of doors and this and that. In back, they had the shipping and, uh, uh, and the bookkeeping. They would put the two desks, put one desk on top of the other. Tom Endowed was the engineer. He built that studio. He was also an accomplished classical musician. And another, you know, so wait a minute now, what is he doing in here? His parents were classical musicians. He also worked out at the, what is that place out in New Mexico with the bomb? Oh, the Manhattan Project. Yeah, he was out there. Uh, plain down to earth, you wouldn't think, uh, you wouldn't think he'd know nothing about anything, but that has his background. He built that studio. And he also had a hand in building this big studio down here in Miami, you know. But uh, that's where he de- passed away a couple of years ago. But uh, it was just in the office, man. Just like these people have red recording studios in their home now, you know. We go to New York Monday. They give us material Tuesday. We rehearsed on Wednesday and Thursday. Friday we cut. And now, nowadays, they lay the track. And then a year later, one guy come in. I'm going through this right now. And the guy come in a year later, another and the guy come in a year later. Hey, get out of here then they spend the whole time catching up, trying to keep up with something. And before, we just did everything at once. I mean, I understand progress and all that, but... uh, Not here. 
the Clover's guitar player, joined the group right around the time of their first session, right? Bill uh, actually came in there. Uh, he, he was in there when we did Don't You Know I Love You. Yeah, uh, we had met him between uh, Yesterday's My Babe and Atlantic, and uh, it, this was just a matter of months. And he was a pretty accomplished guitar player. Bill Harris was a classical guitar player. I never heard of Segovia until I heard him play it. Now, let me tell you about this one. We were on tour with uh, Billy Eckstein. Billy Eckstein, Ruth Brown, uh, Johnny Hodges from the Duke Allenson Band had the, uh, had the band. Nipsey Russell was the MC. And uh, that was it. Johnny Hodges, Ruth Brown, Billy Eckstein, the Clovers. I'll never forget, Bill was sitting up there because he carried the two boxes, and he'd be sitting up there playing fingerstyle on the back of the bus with Eckstein. And uh, Benny Golson, even John Coltrane, them guys said, well, what is that? They knew get we were sitting in the back, he was all the way in the back, and their clothes were hanging, so the sound is muffled. And he said, oh, they're still back there. And then Eckstein got up and went and said, man, what you doing? <laughs> you know. And next thing you know, the cats were standing around listening to him. He's playing classical guitar. But also, he introduced Defender Guitar around D.C., he came on the job one day with this thing, and we got on the train. We were working in Baltimore and says, uh, where's your guitar? And Bill had a thing, and he'd just look at you and smile, you know. And then we started getting serious. Hey, man, where's your guitar? <laughs> you know? <laughs> he never said a word. And he got on the gig, and he opened up the case, man, and we saw this little skinny thing. You know, what is this? It was a guitar. So what have you done? Was he on most of the Clover's recordings? Oh, yeah, he's on everything. Yeah, even after he was no longer with the group, we never went in the studio without him. Who were some of the musicians on those early Atlantic recordings? Atlantic used top musicians, man. Most of the guys that, uh, like Willis Jackson's on most of our stuff, town saxophonists. Uh, I say Connie Kay was the drum. He was the house drummer. Connie Kay was the drummer with the modern jazz quartet. He's on everybody, the drifters and everybody else. And then then uh, he worked with some jazz uh, bands. He, he was with Lester Young. And uh, Percy Heath, the bassist with the modern jazz quartet, was on a lot of our sessions. Jesse Stone, our producer, if you go back in the history of big bands, and there's a song called Idaho, he wrote it. It's a standard. In fact, we recorded it. And uh, tenor saxophonists used, uh, like I said, uh, Frank Florsho Cully, Al Sears, uh, the, the, the McRae brothers. He used uh, Sam the Man Taylor. And uh, these are all qualified musicians, you know. Did Harry Van Walls play piano uh, on some of those sessions? Van Walls, the little guy. Yeah, Van Walls is on a lot of our stuff. Especially early stuff. Did you hear him hollering? What was that, little mama? Screaming? And he left it on the record. <laughs> and that's him on Mentula. That's his introduction. He came up with that. Thank you. 
lost my daughter Got to wait right now Oh, face a starter I didn't know just what I was doing I had to marry all face ruin I met Julep, I met Julep I met Julep, I met Julep Oh, met Julep was the cause of it all Now on I'll be thinking double I'm through with flirting and drinking with I got six extra children from a getting frisky Oh, a man and julep A man julep A man julep A man julep One man julep Was the cause of it How much say-so did the group have over the material that was recorded? We didn't choose the material. Uh, we were still back there. We were still in the caves uh, back there, man. Uh, Jesse Stone picked the material. Jesse and Ahmed and the producers, we, we didn't choose nothing. The only song that we pushed to get, and Bill Harris pushed harder than anybody else there for, for my brother's song, I Got My Eyes On You. Ahmet liked my like my brother Paul personally, and that was another thing that helped. But Jesse Stone because I wanted to do we wanted to do How High the Moon. Jesse said no. I wanted to do Old Man River again because I had another arrangement on. He said no. So we won't do that. But he was producing the said stuff was being produced in his uh, company. He was hired to produce it, you know. There goes a fool. There goes a fool. original lead singer, uh, Buddy Bailey, got drafted. The group took on a couple of new lead singers. Um, I guess the main one was Billy Mitchell. Uh, where did Billy come from, and how did he get recruited into the group? We knew Mitchell. Mitchell was off the corner just like we were. He's from D.C., but uh, he was a blues singer. And he left back, he left Washington before we did. Mitchell was half a joint from high school long. Yeah, he sang, what was that song he used to sing in school? Uh, Water Boy. Big Boy's fan. And he was with Joe Morris' Cavalcade of Stars. Okay? And Joe Morris came out of Lionel Hampton's band. Beautiful man, beautiful man. We're in uh, Gary, Indiana. Mitchell had just come back in Korea. He got back with Joe. Uh, we were in Gary, Indiana, snowing, cold, freezing, this and that. Joe Mars's bus, I never forget that thing. Uh, they had no heat. And Mitchell, was, I mean, they were freezing. All right, so Mitchell did was with the band. Now, our lead singer at that time was Charlie White from the Dominoes. The original Dominoes. That's him singing Little Mama, Good Lovin', and... Uh, I confess. I confess, pretty baby, cause I'm just a fool for you. I confess, pretty baby. Yeah, Charlie had a problem, man, and we uh, we had to let him go, you know. And uh, it was no, it was no bridge burning and stuff, but we we just uh, he had, you know, he he just had to go. 
after that job and Gary, we went to Detroit. After Detroit, we talked to the Mitchell up in Mississippi. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, he was ready, and we didn't teach him nothing. <laughs> you know, he knew what was happening. Walking down the main track one night, I met a fine chick built just right. She stopped when I flashed my robe. I told her she could have all of my gold. She turned around and with a frown, said, This ain't no circus and I don't need a clown. You guys ain't nothing but trash. You guys ain't nothing but trash. Your cash ain't nothing but trash So it ain't no need You're hanging around Just to make a hit with That chick I tried to get a Cadillac Right quick The man at the place looked So strange at 900 bucks And some change We disagreed I tried to plead He said I ain't a chicken And I don't need your feed Your cash ain't nothing but trash Your cash ain't nothing but trash Your cash ain't nothing but trash Baby, you're crawling way past your speed. Da 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 da, da 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 da, da 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 Walking and counting on my bucks. Man with a gun said, hands up. I tried to get away, but too slow. He cocked me and took all of my dough. I heard him shout as he cut out. You ain't lost nothing worth the crying about. You cash in nothing but trash. Your cash in nothing but trash. Your cash in nothing but trash. And he took my watch and I passed out I woke up in the arms of a, a big cop Police station, a neck stop The judge swung his fist down Plunk, plunk, twenty dollar fine cause you're drunk Dig up the dough and you can go All I had was a buffalo You cash in nothing but trash you cash in nothing but trash You cash in nothing but trash But I'm sure gonna get me some more So when Buddy Bailey came home from the Army and rejoined the group, um, you kept Billy too. We decided to keep Mitchell, yeah. This is your host, Neil the Nighthawler, bringing you a very special edition of Trick Bag, spotlighting the history of the Clovers as told by their bass singer, Harold Winley. I recorded an interview with Harold by phone back in August of 2014. As you can hear, Harold is a great raconteur and has a vivid memory of his days with the Clovers, one of the all-time great singing groups. He was 81 at the time of the interview and is still going strong today at 87. Now it's back to the history of the Clovers, as told by Mr. Harold Winley. Weren't there a couple of movies that included some of the Clovers' live performances? Not really. That stuff, man, (laughs) they said that, but all you got to do, I mean, even a kid can look at that and say, that's the same audience, and the applause is the same, and everything. (laughs) That was in the studio. And they, and they cut it up. Uh, Willie Willie Bryant was the MC, who they called the unofficial mayor of Harlem. But uh, that was with the Paul Williams band. Uh, who else did that? Ruth Brown and Big Joe Turner. But see, they took that, took those clips. They broke it up. That was Pape News actually that owned that stuff. So I think we did about five songs. So they broke it up and they put it with Diana Washington. We had the Delta Rhythm Boys and then some other artists. 
And then they would they call it uptown at the Harlem or some Saturday night or some kind of stuff like that, you know. But it was done in the studio. I went in there one day and did all of you do it, then they just cut it out because it was Billy Mitchell. Uh, but he hadn't come out of the army, so that was around 54. Have you ever had anyone say uh, lovey-dovey, call you lovey-dovey? I think that's a cute little saying, but I think it's even cuter now that uh, music has been set to it. And I still think that it's even cuter yet the way the Clovers do it. So here they are, the Clovers! <laughs> Were you the cutest thing that I did ever see? I really love you, bitch. Is gonna set you free, love it, love it, love it, love it all the time. Love it, love it. Put me on the shelf Ain't nothing I can tell you 
But you know what? The friend of mine, uh, she lived in Covington at that time. I'll never forget that. When we did Little Mama, that was an expression she said in New Orleans at the time. That's what she told me. That's an expression here, Little Mama. But uh, she, oh, she left there long, many years ago. She moved to New York. Last I heard of her, she in 40 years. Oh, would you believe 50? Well, time flies. We haven't fun on that. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, speaking of New Orleans, I know you've been here quite a few times. You're, uh, you seem to be pretty familiar with New Orleans. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I was. I still, you know, it's one of my favorite places, man. And uh, I was thinking, as I might have told you before in one of our earlier conversations, the first time we went there was uh, with Memphis Slim with the show uh, at a theater, that theater downtown on, on Canal Street, and it's still there. And then that Sunday, we went up into a neighborhood and did a show. And the very last time that the Clovers appeared in New Orleans is, uh, I'm thinking this is the, uh, uh, that, that, that lounge out there on, uh, Sam Cooke was the first to go in there. We went in there behind him. The safari, a safari room? The safari, yeah. Yeah, I think that was the, class, the name of it. But uh, then before that, though, we had gone into uh, a labor union hall, which we had never worked in New Orleans, and uh, that was quite a thing. It was a dance. And uh, Louis Jordan was there, and he was standing down front and asked us if he could sing Little Mama with us. And we, man, look, that was, that was a complete wipeout. And, and we said, yeah, and he came up and he did it, <laughs> you know. Did that take you by surprise that uh, Louis knew one of your tunes? Louis Jordan, no. No. Uh-uh. Louis was right up on top of things. You know, because he was listening to it. He listened to everything that was going on. You got, to be, uh, you got to be pretty close friends with Jerry Hall when you were here. Yeah, I met Jerry at uh, Frank Panier's. Do drop in, man. I was living down the street at Foster Brothers Hotel, but I man asked me why did I rent the room? <laughs> I had to have somewhere to put my suitcase. <laughs> but I was hanging out all night at Do Drop In. <laughs> all I mean all night. But Frank and Gerald, his son, you know, I remember very well. And Jan Jerry. Do you remember any of the people you used to see perform there? Well, on uh, performance-wise, I don't remember anything. You know, guys was coming in, dropping in, and uh, you know, even that day would come in there sometime and uh, drop a prayer. Uh, what's his name? Yeah, Bartholomew. Bartholomew, yeah, yeah. Uh, Lee, what's Lee's name? Kind of saxophone player. Yeah, Lee Allen. Lee Allen, yeah, yeah. And the group toured with Fats quite a bit too, right? Oh yeah, we worked a lot with Fats. I love that band. Like I told you, uh, they talk. that first band he had, that was it for me. He had two buddies, a short but the original guy, Buddy, that played tenor, then another guy that came in, Buddy, that played tenor. But uh, after Tanuk, uh, the drummer, and Pat Poos passed away, and uh, um, Wendell, the altoist, and then he had the young man that used to open for him. And this boy was a big singer in his own right. I can't think of his whole name, but I know his first name was Jimmy. He was more like a Roy Brown type of singer. He was one of the first of those guys to pass away. Yeah, that had to have been Jimmy Gilchrist. Yeah, yeah, Jimmy. He's a bona fide singer, man. Bona fide blues singer. Man, you know. But I'm just saying that the time, the time that we worked with Fats Man, it was a wipeout. But we were playing places like Bogalusa, Lafayette, Lake Charles. You know, we were just the Clovers and Fats Domino, and then we were in them little places that hold maybe, maybe 250, maybe 350 people. But there was some bad dances, though, man. Fats had the whole joint rocking, the floor be shaking on the place, you know.
That's it for this episode of Trick Bag, but please tune in again for the second half of my interview with Harold Winley. In part two, we'll hear more classic recordings by the Clovers, along with a rare live performance with Count Basie's band from 1956. And like part one, we'll hear the rest of the story of the Clovers as told by their last surviving original member, Harold Winley. This is your host, Neil the Nighthawler, and it's been my pleasure to bring you the tunes tonight. Trick Bag is hosted and produced by yours truly, Neil Pellegrin. Executive produced by Kirsten Cluthy and Adam Kaplan in partnership with EAC Productions with audio production by Matt Dwyer. If you like what you just heard, please rate and review us and subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or any of your other favorite podcast platforms. (laughs) 